The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. It occurred to me while I was sitting over there that I should mention to you that the reason I'm preaching two weeks in a row here is because Pastor Stephen uh, realized after he'd established the preaching schedule that he was going to be preaching at the pastor's conference this last week to 700 and some pastors from around the country, and he needed extra prep time for that, and that's why I'm here as a default backup uh, B plan. And uh, I just want to commend to you, his message hit the bullseye. It was outstanding. So if you can go online and find that message, I don't know if it's been posted yet, it's, it's top tier, and it will be good for your soul, I think, and you'll glorify God because of his message. Now, my aim in this message is to get us to agree with something said by a pagan king. Now, first, does your name mean something? Like my name, Samuel, means something. And Daniel's name, we're going through the book of Daniel now, Daniel's name means something like, God is my judge. Among the major characters in the Bible, Daniel is rare, for we are not told anything explicitly negative about him. In contrast, take Adam, for example. Adam is a main character in the Bible, and he sinned. It's one of the main things about him. Or Noah, a main character. You and I wouldn't be here without Noah. He got drunk and naked. Abraham, the covenant came to us through Abraham, and he lied to Pharaoh, mistreated Hagar. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses committed murder, and in anger, he smashed the tablets written by the finger of God. David committed adultery and conspired to kill a man. Peter publicly denied Jesus. Paul, a serial killer. Major character after major character, lots of negative news, which is good news for us. There is grace for terrible people like me. But nothing negative is recorded about Daniel. And we're told in him there was an excellent spirit. So now open your Bibles, if you have them, to Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 738. Daniel chapter 2, 24. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Stephen preached that in the providence of God, young Daniel and his companions had been taken into captivity. They didn't get taken into captivity behind God's back while he wasn't watching or was taking a nap. God sent them into captivity. And in an act of faith, Daniel requests a 10-day experiment which involves abstaining from the king's food and drink instead of eating veggies. At the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends look healthier than the king's other recruits. And as a result, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are found to be 10 times better in wisdom and understanding than all the magicians and enchanters of the kingdom. And woven through that chapter, chapter 1, we see the sovereign handiwork of God that he sustains and upholds his people 
to live faithfully in the world even as exiles. Despite how dire, disastrous, and depressing the circumstances, God is still sovereign, working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, last week, as we opened up this chapter two, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. And even though the king doesn't know the exact meaning of the dream, he senses it's ominous. And he requires his wise men not only to interpret the dream, but to tell him the dream itself without any, without any hints of what he dreamed. You tell me what I dreamed. They protest, saying only the gods can do such a thing as to know the private thought life of somebody else. And we saw from the New Testament that Jesus knows the unspoken thoughts of others. Conclusion, Jesus is God. Impossible with man does not equal impossible in totality. It's bad logic to say that because no human we know of can do something, therefore it can't be done. That's unwarranted. It's even irrational. The God of the impossible does what man cannot do. So Daniel makes an appeal to the captain of the guard and seeks an audience with the king to make an interpretation of the dream. But before speaking with the king, Daniel speaks with God, inviting his friends to join him. And since the main character in the book of Daniel is not Daniel, but God, the first half of the chapter concludes with Daniel praising God for 14 praiseworthy attributes and competencies, 14 reasons for us to worship him. When it comes to Christian living, these early chapters of Daniel don't provide us so much with a strategy, but with a God about whom we know at least 14 things from that prayer. Which brings us now to verse 24 in chapter two. Let me pray. Our Father, I know that you've taught us that not many of us should become teachers. For we know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You were the one who enabled Daniel to see the dream you gave the king, and now the dream has been revealed. Help us to see it, really see it in these next few minutes, and through it to see you. Amen. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. So hearkening back to the last chapter, he told these magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and Chaldeans, you tell me the dream or else I will tear you limb from limb and I will lay your houses in ruins. The king had appointed him to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he, that is Daniel, went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Now, there were likely some among the wise men who did deserve to die. As magicians, they had violated the word of God about predicting the future. 
And yet here they've been sentenced to death for a crime not worthy of death. It's one thing to sentence somebody to death for violating God's law for what they did. But they hadn't done it. They couldn't do it. Mercifully, Daniel steps in by grace and makes an appeal for grace. And in a manner of speaking, Daniel rescues these magicians as a type of mediator on their behalf. God is in the business of rescuing sinners. Ultimately, he accomplishes it through Jesus, his sinless life, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. By the way, I'll mention that his ascension is helping rescue you and me right now, this minute. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us right now. And in the image of Jesus, good men, like Daniel, are a benefit to bad men. In the ship, God used Paul to rescue all the sailors on board. In the prison, God used Paul and Silas to save the jailer. God may use you in a profound way to benefit your neighbors, your place of business, your extended family. Though Daniel serves to preserve all the advisors of the king, we'll see in a few weeks that they do not return the favor or express any appreciation, but they'll turn on him. Daniel moves forward in faith. Alistair Begg says, quote, faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequences. Let me read that again. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequences. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the decree to tear apart all the enchanters and the magicians and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans limb from limb and lay their houses in ruins is temporarily suspended until it can be determined whether or not the mysterious dream can be unraveled. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? I imagine that the king is a bit incredulous here. And you, Daniel, an outsider, captive, a mere lad, you think you can accomplish what a whole raft of my magicians can't do and refuse to try? Isn't it just like God to use weak and foolish things to confound the mighty? Giant Goliaths are brought down by boys with slingshots and Pharaoh is brought down by a baby floating in a basket and the Midianites are put to flight with some vastly outnumbered pitchers and trumpets. And the Messiah arrives as an infant in straw. And Jesus uses a lad and his lunch to feed thousands. Don't tell God what can't be done. Verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. He's right. The astrologers can't reveal the mystery. They can't even fake it. 
They can shed no light whatsoever on the king's dream. I recently heard on public radio, there are many lamps, but it's all the same light. Well, don't call something a lamp that's a black hole of darkness. Nebuchadnezzar's wise men have no light to shed on this dream. It's fitting that we should have our expectations of people lowered. When people fail to deliver the satisfaction that we desire, they remind us that they're not God. The insufficiency of people should point us to the sufficiency of God. Verse 28, but, just pause on that one word. With the word but, Daniel offers a crucial corrective, focusing on the stark contrast between depending upon God, the true God, and depending upon foolish wise men. 28, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, and it is well for us that there is. This is almost the main point. We'll get to the main point in a moment. It's very close to what we just read. By crediting the one true God, Daniel implies that the powers of the Babylonians are nothing in comparison. Man can't do it, O king. I can't do it, O king. But God can. There's a God in heaven. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. God is not only about to make known the king's private thoughts, but he's about to make known the future. And this is a, a constant challenge that God throws out to the idols. Show me the future, and then we'll know that you're God. The interpretation of the dream will be about future events making it doubly impossible for man. Not only they don't know his thoughts, they don't know the future. Only God knows both. Finishing up verse 28. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. Only God can speak accurately about the future. Verse 30, but as for me, now listen to Daniel's candid humility. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. God understands your thoughts better than you do. Daniel's main mission here is not to explain to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, but to explain to Nebuchadnezzar his God. As Daniel interprets the dream, he makes clear that the central and ultimate player is God. Now, show of hands, how many of you have experienced dreams? Most of you. We can extrapolate from this 
that virtually all kings and presidents and governors of all sorts have experienced dreams. This dream made it into the Bible, while billions of other dreams did not. Mine didn't. I'm assuming yours didn't. This one did. This dream merits our attention. It's not an insignificant dream like Alice in Wonderland fantasy nonsense. Have you had dreams like that? Nonsense? I, yes, I have often. Like, what was that? This dream is about a succession of actual future kingdoms, including one that will last forever. This dream is worth interpreting. And here it comes, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. That's why the king thought it was an ominous dream. 32. The head of this image was of fine gold. Five verses later, he's going to interpret the meaning of that. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It's not man-made. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Jesus says this about himself in Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Observe, Daniel is saying to the king, not only will other kingdoms be blown away, but the golden head, which represents Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom also have an expiration date. Picking it up in verse 35. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Speaking of worldwide jurisdiction. Genesis 49, 24 mentions, quote, The mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Verse 36. Daniel says, This was the dream. And now we, perhaps Daniel has his buddies with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and now we will tell the king its interpretation. God's, or Daniel's God-given ability to accurately describe and interpret this dream, things that could only be known to God, demonstrate to the king and to the rest of the Babylonians that Daniel speaks by divine enablement, an enablement 
beyond the power of their, their idols. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. He's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, it is God who has given you your kingdom, and the power, and the might, the glory associated with your kingdom, the jurisdiction to rule this people, to take me into captivity. Verse 38, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Now, who are these kingdoms? And here's what I'm going to say about who the kingdoms are. Though commentaries tend to agree and make some good arguments that these kingdoms are, number one, the Medo-Persians, that will replace Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, they'll replace him before the end of the book of Daniel, the Medo-Persians. And second would be the Greeks, Alexander the Great, who conquers the known world at that particular time. And third, the Romans, or Caesar, who, whose kingdom, whose reign, whose realm will be in charge when Jesus comes. Daniel doesn't say whether those are the kingdoms, the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't told. And so I don't think it's within the scope of this message to try to make a claim one way or the other. We can still get the main point of this text, whether we know who those kingdoms are or not. So we'll just bracket that. And that could be a discussion for another time. Some commentators observe that iron not only marks the strength of this fourth kingdom, as we saw there, but its violence and its cruelty, especially toward people of God, because the advent of iron makes it possible to make swords and spears and axles for chariots and that sort of thing. These four kingdoms here in this statue are not represented by four separate statues, but one statue standing in the same place. They have the same spirit, the same worldly mindset. They stand on the same ground, so to speak. I would add that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of all of those four kingdoms and any kingdom that's a kingdom anywhere. What's happening right now between Russia and Ukraine? God is in charge. North Korea in recent days has launched a missile that can go so far it can reach Guam. God is in charge. Let's go to verse 41. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those 
Kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Every other kingdom has been and or will be succeeded by another, but not this one. It cannot be destroyed. It does not originate with men, and men cannot destroy it. Luke 1.33 says, Of Jesus' kingdom there will be no end. Christianity will stand at the grave of every other kingdom. Christ prevails. Christ crucified and risen is a monarch with no successor. Nebuchadnezzar is in power for now, but he won't be. 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Who sets up this kingdom? Answer. God of heaven. What kind of a kingdom is his kingdom? Romans 14 gives us a clue. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a righteous kingdom, overcoming and putting away sin. It's a kingdom of peace, reconciling sinners with a holy God. It's a kingdom of rest. It's a kingdom of joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction in God as the greatest treasure there could be. In this kingdom, you gain everlasting pleasure. And everlasting means it's everlasting. It doesn't go away. You can't lose it. Still in verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Whatever God has made known, we can depend on. Now, notice Nebuchadnezzar did not interrupt Daniel during this whole interpretation. He didn't ask any questions, and he has no objections. So, the king makes a very solemn and remarkable declaration, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. Hold it. Subjects bow to kings. Kings don't bow to subjects, especially captives. What's going on here? He paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense. Wait a minute. He's going to pay tax to Daniel. Kings don't pay taxes. He commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. I mean, Daniel has just forecast the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And instead of resenting Daniel or being enraged, he receives it as an oracle. What is going on here? Nebuchadnezzar knows that he's in the presence of a power greater than his own. 
47. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly. Get this now. This is the main point. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now at the outset of this sermon, I said one of my aims was to get us to agree with something said by a pagan king, and this is the thing. I want us to agree with this. It's the same as the main point made in verse 28. Daniel's God is the God of gods. I don't know if you're looking at the bulletin that gives the order of service and gives the title of the message. That last word, gods, is a lowercase g. The other gods are not the true God. Nebuchadnezzar is incrementally gaining an appreciation for the supremacy of God. Though it's going to be a couple more chapters yet in Daniel before he embraces the supremacy of God in all things. Daniel is able to reveal the mystery because God is a revealer of mysteries. Beneath Daniel is God. In Daniel is this excellent spirit of God. I hope you feel it was worthwhile to come to church this morning because God put him in the center of your thoughts and you were glad to be reminded that he's the God of gods and the Lord of kings. 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. In fact, Daniel will serve three successions of kings. No Nebuchadnezzar is rightly impressed with Daniel's God, he Nebuchadnezzar is not sufficiently changed. Now, he's charmed. He's not changed. I'm going to invite the choir to come up to the platform right now. In light of today's text, what sort of persons should we be? This gospel according to Daniel should give us courage against our foes, Hope in our distress, perseverance in our trials, which, of which we have plenty. If we will not let every prophetic mystery derail us from the main message of God's sovereign prevailing grace. Now how far does God's sovereignty extend? Here in Daniel chapter 2 we observe King Nebuchadnezzar awakening to the reality that God is sovereign over dreams and interpretations, including dreams about the future. And in chapter 3, coming up, we observe how the king's limited understanding of sovereignty expands to include fiery furnaces. And in chapter 4, the king almost seems to get it. God is Lord universally. He is what the king will call most high. He can transform even the king's thought life, even your thought life. Come back next week. 
We've seen here that the Lord is being gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. May the Lord be gracious to you. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.